0: Welcome, everyone. My name is Kristen, and I'm thrilled to be hosting today's Awaken Call. Thank you for joining us from wherever you happen to be in the world. The intention behind these calls is to plant seeds of awareness and transformation within ourselves and our communities through conversations with individuals whose journeys and work inspire us. Awaken Calls is an initiative of service space a distributed global all-volunteer community committed to the principle that by changing ourselves, we change the world. Behind each of these calls is an entire service space team whose invisible work allows us to hold this space. In a few minutes, our moderator, Bonnie, will begin by opening up a dialogue with our speaker, Alicia Doyle. And by the top of the hour, we'll open into a circle of sharing where we will draw upon reflections and questions from our listeners. At any time during the call, you can submit your comments or questions via the webcast form on our live streaming page, or you can email us at That's ask at service That's a S K at service whether you're tuning in live or listening to the recording later, we're so grateful for your presence in co-creating and deepening the collective energy of this conversation. And just a friendly reminder, if there's a tech glitch or other issue for any of the speakers, please hang on while our team works quickly to bring the speakers back on. Let us begin with a minute of silence to anchor ourselves into this space. Thank you and welcome again. Our moderator for today's call with Alicia Doyle is Bonnie Rose. Bonnie is the spiritual director of an interfaith center in Ventura, California. The center focuses on love, compassion, kindness, and joy. Bonnie has volunteered with Service Space for many years, and she herself has been a guest speaker on these Awaken calls. She lives in Ventura County with her husband in a large menagerie. She will now introduce our guest, Alicia, and begin this conversation. Thank you, Bonnie, and over to you.
1: Thank you, Kristen. Really appreciate that introduction. Um, we may be hearing from some of the menagerie today, by the way. I just wanted to warn you all. <laughs> they're, they're always a presence in my life. But enough about me. I want to talk a little bit about Alicia before we jump into this interview. So... Um, I met Alicia in, I think it was 2010, because she was a journalist. She was a good news journalist for our local paper in the county where we live. And uh, she covered many things for our spiritual center, including, as I recall, an article or two about Nipun Mehta, one of the, the founders of, of service space. Uh, when I, I knew Alicia through text and email, and I, I met her once, and I was just so touched with what a gentle soul she was. Then, just about a year ago, I was shocked to find out that she used to be a professional boxer. That she would literally put on a pair of shorts and a pair of boxing gloves and get into the ring and fight with people. And I, I didn't know—I didn't know how to reconcile that in my mind. So I, I became really interested in that, and I read her book, which is called *Fighting Chance*, and um, that offers an inside look as to her journey with boxing and and uh, what is really considered one of the, the most challenging sports known to to humankind more than that though it's a journey about her overcoming her overcoming of adversity her overcoming of inner conflict her overcoming of fear her ability to rise above conditions that would seem impossible to many people and the, she offers so much spiritual wisdom in in this book that we felt like she'd be a, a great fit for the service Space awakening call so um, Alicia's won many awards in both journalism and boxing, and I think in in my heart I feel like hopefully she'll back this up. But it seems like beyond the awards, the greatest accomplishment that she has is what she's learned through this journey. Uh, there was also a transformation in her style of jur- journalism that came from this too. But we'll get to that later. Our focus today is on that inner transformation. So um, please join me in in welcoming our beautiful guest, Alicia Doyle Churau. Time together. Hi, Alicia. I think you're muted, so you may wanna just tap on your little mute thing. There you go. Hi, Great. Bonnie.
2: Thank, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. And um, I believe it was no accident that you and I met a decade ago. We were meant to meet and we were meant to be aligned. And I'm so honored to be chatting with, with you right now about this book. Thank
1: you. Um, yes, I'm, I'm honored to be chatting with you and also honored to, to be chatting virtually with all of the people that are on this call from all over the world. And you're, you're just such a good fit, Alicia. From what I know about you, you're just such a good fit for service space with your heart and your energy. Just beautiful. Um, but you know what? I think i think I, I said I was gonna ask a question first, but let's go ahead and have those slides. We have our tech wizard who's gonna show us just some pictures of Alicia, just to, so before we jump into the questions. So, um, if you could go ahead and show them, that would be great. <laughs> pictures of Alicia fighting and pictures of Alicia coaching little kids. So just off the top of my head, how does it feel to look at those slides?
2: Oh, it, bring, it brings tears to my eyes.
1: That's, uh, um, yeah.
2: The, the first show, that, yeah, that was uh, from the year 2000. Uh, that was a long time ago and uh, I remember everything like it was yesterday. I remember every fight like it was yesterday. And then um, the last slide you showed, that's little Tegan, um, who is the daughter of the son of the owner of the boxing gym where I got my start. So it brings tears to my eyes to see, just to see the progression over the past two decades.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful.
2: So, um
1: you know, from from working on your bio and, and reading about you, I know that you started out as a journalist and um, you moving into a career in boxing seems like quite a leap. So tell us a little bit about how you made that leap from journalism to
2: boxing. Um, well, I love telling the story of how I found boxing or shall I say how boxing found me um, because I believe it was not an accident. And I need to proceed this, this story of, by saying that I used to view boxing as the dark side. I had no appreciation for the beauty of the sport at all. So that said, I was sitting alone in the newsroom one night working on a story. And the phone rang. And I was the only one there. So I answered it. And it was a community activist in the town of Simi Valley, California, asking for press coverage for a boxing gym for at-risk youth that had been destroyed by El Nino rains. Um, and the minute she said boxing, I turned off, and I said, you know, I'll, I'll pass it along to a sports reporter. This isn't the kind of stories I do, and she said, uh, you're not understanding the story. The story is that it, this gym was for at-risk youth. These are very troubled kids, and they needed this place where they could call it a second home, where they were loved unconditionally and welcomed with open arms, and now these kids had nowhere to go, so that tugged at my heart. Um, I thought, okay, we need to figure this out, how to help this guy. So I went to uh, meet this, this person, and I had all sorts of preconceived notions about the owner of this gym because he was aligned with boxing. He was an owner of a boxing gym. So I made a lot of assumptions about this person that were very negative. And then I met him, and he was one of the kindest, sweetest, gentlest human beings I'd ever met. And I thought, this is interesting because he tore down all the ideas I had about him. And I ended up reporting on that gym for about a year because I fell in love with this man's heart. And then I got the opportunity to meet a lot of the children that he's helped and a lot of their caregivers and their parents and their big brothers and sisters. And I just saw um, this, this strength within them, this deep beauty within them, knowing that they, had, they were struggling with really hardcore stuff. So that's um, really what piqued my interest in the sport. But um, I reported on that gym for a year before I ever put on a pair of boxing gloves. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> before we get into that further about how you put on your pair of boxing gloves, I, it just strikes me as so, such a great lesson that the thing that we, that we hate or the thing that we disdain or the thing that we think is evil often somehow through something miraculous, through some real miraculous process becomes our greatest teacher. Isn't that amazing?
2: Yes, it is. And it's, it was completely unexpected. And uh, today I can say that boxing was my salvation. And had I not found it at that time, it's highly possible I wouldn't be here today talking to you. Um, the sport saved my life. And uh, what got me into the gym that day um, to hit a heavy bag was, um, and the owner of the gym had long encouraged me, to try boxing. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to get hit. I don't want to do it. And he said, no, this is no contact boxing. It's a great workout. You'll love the workout. You'll fall in love with the workout. And so I was constantly blowing him off. And then when, what got me into the gym that day was I had a really bre- bad breakup with a boy who um, punched me in the face more than once. And needless to say, I was really angry about that. I was angry that I allowed myself to be in an abusive relationship. I was angry that I allowed myself to be a statistic. I was very ashamed. I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. And I just wanted to hit something as hard as I could over and over again. I had so much anger inside. So I showed up at the gym that day. My eyes were swollen because I was crying all night. And Robert Ortiz, the owner of the gym, had gotten to know me during that time. So he knew something was wrong, but he didn't push it. And he said, are you okay? And I said, all I said was, I'm here to take your class. He gave me some gloves. And I, I hit that heavy bag for an hour. And all I knew was that it made me feel better. That workout was so difficult that there was no room in my head for anything else. And because I had an hour to just let all that go, it was a respite. It became a place of comfort for me. So that made me feel so good. I was back the next day and the next. And before I knew it, I was taking two, three of these aerobic boxing classes in a row six days a week because that's how much anger I had. And every time I did this training, I wouldn't feel that anger. Um, it, and I was doing that for a bit. And, because I was one of few females in the gym, the boxing gym that trained at the level I did, other coaches started to notice me. And that's when I was approached by a gentleman named Stan Ward, who's big in the boxing world, a wonderful man who asked if I'd ever consider competing. And it was a, a surprise question. But at the same time, I hadn't considered it. And that's when he told me that women's boxing was becoming huge at that time. During that time, and there were only about 600 women in America who were competing mm-hmm. in boxing. So it would have been, I could have been part of something bigger than myself. This movement for women in boxing, the sport that um, women were not allowed to box in the Olympic Games when I was competing. Women were not allowed. Women were allowed to box in the Olympics in the year 2012, which wasn't that long ago. And I believe myself and all my incredible female competitors. We help pave the way for women to box in the Olympics today. Yeah,
1: you know. So it strikes me too, as you're speaking, that um, you had all that anger about being hit in the face and about being a statistic, and all that. And there are so many ways that you could have internalized either internalized that anger and done something damaging to yourself, or hurt another person with that anger. And and now I see a bit why you say boxing was your salvation. It it sounds like hitting that mm-hmm. bag put you on a path to really save you from, from the, um,
2: the destructive effects of anger. That's wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Yes, it was. It was thank you for, for getting that. Um, yeah, it was saving me from myself. And, and I didn't know that right away. All I knew was that um, I was feeling great every time because the, the, the endorphins from working out, they make you feel terrific. So after every workout, I would feel great. Um, until I drove home and got back in my own space and got into my head again about what was going on. But that's why I kept on going to the gym. It, it literally became an addiction, these workouts. So it was really fitting for me. And I loved the fact that, you know, it's a clean and sober workout. You, you simply can't do harmful things to your body when, you're, when you want to become this level of athlete. And a, a nice side effect was I was getting in the best shape of my life.
1: Yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> so you decided to do competitive boxing and what was that like like how did how did you how were you able to put on shorts and a top and gloves and get mm. into a ring and, and hit somebody and run the run the risk of being mm. hit what was that like?
2: Mm. yeah that was incredible and um, I remember every fight like it was yesterday and every single one of them is in the book uh, I learned that the fear of course was in my head but we make it real when it's on our head. And every single time I stepped into that ring, I was terrified, but I also knew it was a matter of just getting in there. And I knew that the only way out was through. Uh-huh. And I had to get through the fight to get in, to get through on the other side. And I could have thrown in the towel. I could have been like, no more, you know, I could have just walk back to my corner, but I didn't, there was something inside me that just wanted to finish because I knew if I didn't, that I would have felt worse, whether I won or lost a fight. I knew the only way out was through. So it was a constant battle second to second when I was in that ring to keep going. And, and it goes, it goes so fast. Uh, but just, the, tr- the training is what prepares a fighter for being in the ring, just like any kind of life training trains us to be in life. And you practice enough, you practice enough, it becomes automatic. And that's what the training and boxing is for. So when you get in that battle and step into that square and get into that war, you automatically know what to do. The body is trained to know what to do. Then it becomes about your mind to just stay in there because every time I got hit, it hurt. That never stopped. It, it, it hurt. You know, I don't know how other fighters felt, but it, so when I would get hit, I would just, in my mind, very quickly translate like, I'm okay, you're okay, you're okay, keep going. Yeah, that hurts. Mm-hmm. You're okay, keep going. And just second to second. But those seconds, you know, girls at the time, we were fighting two-minute rounds. Um, the boys fight three-minute rounds. So we're talking, uh, you know, 120 seconds around. And I tell you, those 120 seconds felt like an eternity when you're in this battle, in this war, and you don't know if you're going to survive. And that's another yeah. thing about it that I loved was this intensity that, okay, that this person, I, I engaged in this sport. I signed up for this. But if this person knocks me out or in a rare occurrence kills me, they get to go home and have dinner. So that intensity, too, is like, I need to survive this war. I need to survive this battle. I could get knocked out. I could get killed. And that was what kept me going. But um, it, it was nuts. And I look back, and I'm amazed that I was able to do it as well. Because um, I, I did get to the point in my fighting career where I realized it was time to walk away, where I didn't want to be hurt anymore and I didn't want to hurt anybody else.
1: I, I was going to ask that, like, what was it like to, to know that you were going like, to hit people and possibly hurt them? How did you do that?
2: Um, that's a great question. Because one thing I always did before a fight was I never wanted to meet the girl. I never wanted to meet her because I knew the minute I looked in her eyes, I would like her. And if I liked yeah. her, there's no way I could do my job in that ring because I was yes, I viewed it as a sport, it as a sport, and I understood that I needed to score points to win. But scoring those points meant hurting somebody. And uh, my trainers, my coaches, they taught me to have a nose breaking jab. And anybody who's listening who understands boxing, the jab is your is is your left or your right. It can be you know, whatever, whether you're south or not, but the jab is not designed to break faces. The right, the hard right is what is designed to break faces. And my coach taught me how to break a face with my jab. So, you know, I was known for that. Um, it was hard um, to go to watch and watch a girl bleed and to see her keep going. And I got to point out that when I started boxing, I was 28 years old, and that's considered old for athletics. So all these girls were younger than me. I fought teenagers. Um, it didn't feel good breaking their face in the first round, but at the same time, I knew that, okay, then I might win. But to watch these incredible women get their nose broken in round one and to keep going, that to yeah. me, I find remarkable. Yeah. Uh, the strength of these women.
1: Yeah, yeah. It sounds it sounds like there are as you know one thing I think that we're learning as a culture um, is that we want to see life as black and white. This black and white. This is good. This is evil. You know, whatever, however you want to phrase it that way, dark and light. And it sounds like you found many shades of gray in in boxing. And and I'm also hearing so much of a metaphor. Like, do do you see? It sounds like you said what you were saying before about how it, your training prepares you for being in the ring. Can I know this is not on the list of questions I gave you, but um, are you able to elaborate okay. on that metaphor just a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Say that again? Can you elaborate on that metaphor just a little bit? How boxing is somewhat of a metaphor for life itself?
2: Yes, um, I do believe boxing is a metaphor for life. Um, and that's um, a theme throughout the whole book. And that, you know, when you step in the ring, when you're by yourself, I was by myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a team surrounding me. I was in this roped off square. The roped off square is life. The mm-hmm. battle is myself. Can I step through my fear and get this job done? And that was a, a very personal battle. It had n- nothing to do with anybody else. You know, how do I overcome that fear? I tell myself I can do this. I can survive. I am a survivor. I chose this. This chose me. Um, you know, Everything I was fighting was in my head, in my, in my mind, and, and therefore it was real. But we all have these things going on in our heads, these, these battles, these inner dialogues, and it's up to us to decide how to execute that in the ring of life so that we can survive. But we're all equipped with these skills, I believe, um, to survive and, and to pinpoint what it is about ourselves that we need to overcome. It's about overcoming the self. And that was, that was something I had to figure out. And it took years mm-hmm. to overcome mm-hmm. myself. Um, I got to a point where, you know, I'd won all these titles. I mean, it was amazing. I got a lot of attention in the press, being one of few females, being an ex-journalist. Um, and it still wasn't good enough. Mm. I still wasn't happy. Um, and, and people on the outside looking in, they thought I was remarkable, but I still didn't see that. And mm-hmm. that's when it's that's when the that's when the real work started was like, I have everything and I'm still unhappy. So what is that? And And that's when the real work began, because I'll tell you, Bonnie, when I was boxing for two years, I thought I had found a cure for my depression and my sadness and my rage. I really believed I found this cure and it made me so happy. But when I retired, all that pain came back. It's like, like I'd never boxed at all. And that's when I realized, okay, I got to look deeper in this and then I have to step away from the, the fighting and this thing. I realized that boxing was just a wonderful distraction mm-hmm. from my mm-hmm. deep pain because boxing was so intense and the fights were so intense and it was all encompassing. I had to focus on boxing a hundred percent. Otherwise I could have gotten very hurt in that ring. But when I retired and I didn't have that focus anymore, I had to, all this stuff that was lying under the surface, it was, it was right there reminding me, hey, I'm still here. You need to look at me. Let's figure this out. And, yeah, it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt. And you're going to feel like you're going through hell. But you will get through to the other side because the only way out is through. And boxing prepared me for that because I mm-hmm. realized if I can survive these wars, then I can survive my inner war. Mm-hmm. That, that was hard work when that, when that happened. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Cause I'm, I'm sure that I know, I know I am, I won't speak for everybody on the call or everybody who listens in the future that we're all, we're all struggling. We're all in a ring and we're all fighting our inner wars and, and, and figuring out how to, how to navigate all of that. Um, and I want to get to how, how you navigated that in a little bit, but before we do, I, I, a couple of things, my, my mind's going everywhere because I have lots of questions for you, but one of them was, I love um, it. Good, good. One of them was, I, I remember when we spoke before that you talked about what it was like when you lost and, and how touching that was to me, because it, it's, you know, what you were just saying about how boxing was not the cure. It's almost like boxing was trying to get your attention. And what, what got my attention and what we talked about before was how it felt when you lost and what that was like. So are you open enough to share that with us today?
2: Oh, of course. Absolutely. It's all in the, it's all in the book. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, and I, I must say, and, and I appreciate you, you providing a safe space for me to, um, to express this. Um, I, um, I took my losses really, really hard. And um, what was so interesting about it was people watching, you know, when you're boxing and you lose, it's like, you're naked in front of the world. Oh. And um, but even when I lost, like everybody in the boxing world and the people in the audience and even people from rival gyms, whether I lost or won, they would embrace me after every fight because they understood that I survived a war and it didn't matter if I won or lost. But in my mind, I wanted that win. It was just so important to me to have that W. So um, when I lost, I would I would just withdraw um, I remember I, I had a tournament fight, and it was remarkable. It was three days of boxing, back-to-back boxing in a row, and I had gone all the way to the finals. I beat one opponent one day, one opponent the second day, and then the third opponent on the third day, was, I was scheduled to fight, and I wanted to win that tournament. But it was uh, on my third day of boxing, I was tired. I was tired. Mm. And um, I lost by a couple of points. Um, and after that, I just went to a room, I found a room, um, in the center and I just sat in a corner and I cried and, um, you know, the kind of crying where you're hyperventilating kind of cry. And, um, and then I wiped my tears and I walked out because, you know, everybody's there. And I was just surprised because there was this circle of women there waiting for me, girls, um, to, including the two opponents I beat the day prior. And they were standing there waiting for me and they saw and they just surrounded me and hugged me and told me how remarkable I was. And I tell you, that strength of these women, that female energy, including the opponents that I beat the days prior, they were the ones that were my soft place to land. And I didn't know these women, you know, but it was it was like God saying like, it's OK, you know, and I'm realizing too later on that the only one being hard on myself was me, nobody else.
1: Yeah,
2: it was yeah. me and I, I had to look at that too I had to be like why why am I so devastated when I lost a fight and I knew that meaning was a lot deeper because I was so devastated and I realized it could go back and back and back you know to the childhood and all those triggers of just you know feeling never feeling good enough and mm-hmm. so I you know I was able to make that connection but those those are things that popped up a lot where it was like why Am I acting this way now as an adult? And then connecting that to something that happened in childhood and realizing, okay, I need, to, I need to rectify and fix that thing in my mind and in my heart, what happened to me in childhood. Otherwise, this stuff is never going to go away. And, and that's when the work, that's the work. That's the hard part. But it was, it was right in my faith. God was showing me what I needed to do. And, um, you know, and he did give me the tools to work through it um basically just knowing in those moments where i i didn't want to go on mm-hmm. were the times mm-hmm. when i really sat still and i talked to god and god mm-hmm. got me through it all
1: mm-hmm. are you talking about boxing or after boxing because you said after boxing that's when a lot of the real healing began
2: <sighs> i'd say both i'd say both but um yeah afterwards it was very difficult that process when i retired and realized that i hadn't cured anything <laughs> that I haven't solved anything. I mean, uh, but I realized too, that the boxing gave me the skill because all the mental skills that were, reco- that I was required of in the ring were the same skills that required me to work, to do the hard work was just to be persistent, to stay present with it, to feel it and um. check out, you know, with a, with a bottle of wine, which is easy to get wherever you go to just sit with it and just sit with that sweet, beautiful experience appreciating pain yeah. and to embrace it because that's yeah. something else I learned because for the longest time I was denying my dark side, my own shadow side, which are not dark shadows at all. These are just things that happened, but i labeled them as dark. And I realized by denying those pieces of myself, I was denying myself. Mm-hmm. I had to embrace and love the dark pieces. The heartbreak pieces is what I call them in my book. You know, these, uh, you know, we're all made up of puzzle. We, we're, we are all a very unique puzzle with all these beautiful pieces. And we all have heartbreak pieces, these painful things that we don't want to remember. We want to throw them away. We don't want to stick them in our puzzle. But when we do that, our puzzle is incomplete. And I realized that I had those heartbreak pieces. Those were the pieces I really had to love. Mm, and that yeah. was hard. Yeah. And, and the help, you know, it's like God loves those pieces. God loves those pieces. Why can't I? And yeah. then it became a recognition of I was torturing myself. Yeah. I I was an adult. I'm an adult now. So if that's happening, it's me doing it to me. It's nobody doing it. Nobody else doing it to me. So digging into that deeply. But yes, of course, God has been my rock and my foundation the entire time. And I... I got to credit my mom for that, for the spiritual upbringing that I was raised in. Um, if it wasn't for that, I would not have the skills to navigate yeah. life, to navigate what I went through as a kid, even, even oh, now the, the teaching is embedded in me, and I live by it every day because it works, and it brings me a lot of comfort. Mm-hmm.
1: So when you say the teaching, you mean um, that? Embracing every every part of yourself and recognizing that that God or higher power or spirit, whatever whatever we want to call it, actually loves you exactly as um, you are.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And yes, like the spiritual foundation, um, I'm I'm so grateful for because without it, I I wouldn't have got been able to to go through what I did with the boxing or anything else for that matter. You know, looking back and contemplating the times when when things really could have gotten extremely bad as a child and these strange things that would happen that would, you know, step in between this, this harm's way. I mean, it happened over and over again and, and God doesn't stop. God's always there for us. You know, we do have free will, but just knowing that I had him there and, um, you know, I was raised Methodist while my mom was married. And then after her divorce, uh, we started um, going to a church in Colorado called the science of mind based on the teaching of Ernest Holmes. And, um, I remember my mom enrolled me into the children's class, and I didn't want to go because I was a defiant child, and that's where we learned really magnificent things, like how to read each other's auras and that sort of thing. We would read from you know, the book. They had a child's version, so we would read through that, um, but back then, I didn't, I didn't understand what this incredible gift was that my mom was giving me. You know, that, that was something that later on, it was like, wow all that teaching, you know, it makes sense. And, and these th- these are things I can live by for my entire life. And it's such a beautiful teaching and it, and it, and it is quite simple. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm lucky that I found her and, you know, it's in alignment of course, with, you know, with your church and your spiritual teaching, you know, and uh, who we are as humans on this planet that we're, these, we're all bundles of energy and we're all very special and we're unique, but at the same time, we're all connected. And that's really important, you know, yeah. to embrace each other and to love each other and to be vulnerable, because that's what makes
1: us beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing to me, too, to, to look at the, um, the, the path that you took, your childhood, and then this this influx of spirituality here that, you know, maybe you didn't really want at the time, but, but then over here, you've got boxes. Which, which also, I mean, and then, and then you have this pain, and you have the boyfriend that hits you in the face, and how it's all, it, it all really is like a puzzle, and it's all, it seems like, it, it again, and this is, I'm, I don't mean to impose my religious beliefs on anybody, but that everything is conspiring for a greater, for a greater good, for a greater emergence oh, yeah. of something within you. Oh yeah. I want to actually talk a little bit about some of the, the, um, the the um work that you did at Kid Gloves because when you when you started the call you mentioned that that you were attracted to it because it was a place for children that who were at risk. And and in the photos that we showed, we showed you coaching children. So um tell us a little
2: bit about that and especially what did you learn from the kids and
1: their families. Oh
2: wow that that was so interesting. Um because so I meet these kids and and they're so they're so wonderful. Oh Innocent. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I realized right away the re- that the reason why I resonated to these kids was because I was the same. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that. They see this reporter, you know, looking like I do. And uh, they didn't know my past or my history. Nobody, in fact, knew until I wrote that book, what really happened to me. But I resonate to them because I'm like, okay, these kids are going through some really hard stuff like I did. But, you know, they can still laugh and they're still weed and they still have hopes and um that's that's what made me fall in love with them and um you know and i'm still a coach at kid gloves boxing today i'm still a coach there because i i love them and they come in and some of them come in um they come in broken yeah uh, they come in shy broken they're they're looking at the ground they're not talking to anybody and, and these we understand these kids there's something we just innately understand them and we love them no matter what. And they understand very quickly that this is a place where they're going to go, where grownups are going to show them nothing but love and support, that there is nothing, there's nothing wrong. They're not doing anything wrong. And I tell you, these kids they'll walk in all shy and scared and sad, a month later they're coming in like they walk in like they own the place. Wow, like they own the place. And, and they light up. And the next thing you know, they're leading the class. And they're, they're standing taller and their shoulders are back and they have that confidence. And with the children I coach, it is no contact boxing. I, may, I want to make that really clear. We're not hitting each other. They're not hitting each other. It's all the training. There's something about the boxing training that when a kid masters a punch or a combination, it just boosts them like from the inside out in terms of their confidence because boxing is an incredibly difficult sport. So for them to master any of these skills, makes them understand that basically they can do that. They can do anything. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: So it's, so it's important up. that, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, you go, you go. It's okay. Go ahead. Oh, well, it's to, to me, it's important that I stay, um, that I'm still aligned with kid gloves box saying, you know, this is 20 years after I retired because um, that, that energy in that gym and the owner, Robert Ortiz, it's a really special place and it's hard to describe unless you're in there, but it's a place of beauty and peace and love and joy. Um, amazing athletes, of course, when you get in that collective energy of people that are athletes that are take the best care of themselves. It's, a, it's an awesome, powerful energy. So that's, a, you know, I still go back because I love coaching the kids, but it's also because I need, I need that ground to get, keeps me grounded. And it reminds me of, it reminds me of one of the reasons why I'm here. Mm-hmm. and that I'm meant to be here. And the fact that I'm there coaching them, it's like, okay, I I am meant to be here. I'm supposed to be here. I'm here for a reason. And I need, you know, I need that sometimes more than I don't to remind myself, okay, I'm, I need, I'm, I'm here because I'm supposed to be, and and God does have a plan and I just have to keep going.
1: Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. um it, you you mentioned also um, when we spoke that um, and in, in your book as well that um, your your path through boxing changed your path through journalism as well. So mm-hmm. um can you tell us a little bit about what that was? And I'd I'd love to hear that story about the the, the child. The, I won't oh. I won't give it do you know what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So wow. Okay, so you know, I, I was a journalist starting in my early 20s. I worked for the Los Angeles Times, the Daily News, the San Diego Union Tribune, you know, the biggest metropolitan newspapers in Southern California. And um, I used to be a very cutthroat journalist I, and I was very good at it. I always, you know, back then it was the heyday of journalism where I'd be competing. You know, every time there was a story, a breaking story, I'd show up and there would be reporters from every paper in the Southland. There would be news stations there. It was a big deal. So we were all kind of had this friendly rivalry of who's going to get the best story on the front page. And that's all I cared about back then. Um, so um, that said, I went. I went on an assignment and. Um, it was okay. So it was in Moore Park, and some of you listening, if you're from that town, you might even remember this. This is over 20 years ago. Moore Park was a very small, uh, beautiful town, and it still is. And a, a little boy went missing Joel Birchfield. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, little boy in grade school. He just went missing. He didn't come home from school. And the next thing you know, um, the police, it's this, this hunt for this child. They didn't know he had been kidnapped. I mean, they were thinking the worst. And I show up with my photographer to, the, to their house where it's a media frenzy. And, and then, you know, people from the neighborhood coming out. There's children running around everywhere. It was a kind of a sleepy cul-de-sac kind of a neighborhood. Um, the children were riding their bikes and looking. Because all these cop cars, you know, they didn't know, really know what was going on, I don't think. I'm standing on the sidewalk with my photographer, and I'm looking at this. And, the, and I say to my photographer, and there's children around, I say to him, I said, there's one thing that those other reporters don't have. And he said, what? And I said, they don't have a picture of Joel. Nobody has a picture of Joel. So there was a child standing with an earshot and he says to me, I have a picture of Joel. And I got excited. And I said, really, where is it? And he said, it's, it's on the fireplace in my house. And that's when I realized that it was Joel's little brother and in that moment, I don't know what happened. I just felt like God, I, I felt like the ugliest human being. I felt just like scum of the earth that this child hurt me and that uh, this child is going to grow up and figure out later on what was happening. And in that moment, like he did, he's like, do you want me to get it for you? And I looked at my photographer who was just dumbfounded and I said, no, sweetie, that's okay. Because I knew if I had that kid get that photo, whether it would have got me on the front page or not, that that kid was going to grow up to be a man. And he was going to remember that reporter that made him do that. Mm. And um, it was shortly after that where I saw the ugliness of what I was doing. And it made me feel so terrible. And I knew that story that I wrote about that kid being missing, that it wasn't going to make anybody feel good. And, and it was a relief when we found out that Joel was not kidnapped. He was crossing the Arroyo Simi and it had rained. And he stepped on a rock and he slipped and hit his head and he died instantly. So he wasn't in any pain. So yeah. we found that out later. But um, that was when I, I thought, because I had covered so many dark, ugly stories as a journalist, just heinous things, walking on into crime scenes right after they happened. It's like I just didn't want to do that anymore. And I didn't want to write stories that made people feel that horrible energy. I thought, that's not my purpose here. I can't use this, this gift of writing that God gave me to put n- negativity in the world. And, and I retired shortly after that from my, that's when I went freelance. That's when I quit the papers. I went freelance. I decided I was only going to focus on positive news. I didn't want to write any more doom and gloom because it was breaking my heart. And I knew every time I wrote about it, it was breaking other people's hearts. So that's when I quit. It was that assignment in that moment yeah it's, it's um, and t- a year later what was lovely um, was a year later um, after I quit it was really beautiful and this is in the book too um, it was a one-year anniversary of Joel Joel dying and I wanted to do an anniversary story about just where the family was and how they were doing and this this mom was so beautiful like allowed me to come in her home welcome this journalist into her home and and um, took me into Joel's room um, and she hadn't, she hadn't moved a thing. It was exactly the way he left it a year ago. And we're sitting in his room on his little bed and we're just talking. And she said that, um, what was interesting, cause they have another son, you know, Joel wasn't their only child. And she said that before they were really into, you know, they made a lot of money, you know, mm-hmm. they, they were wealthy people. And after Joel's death, they didn't care so much about that anymore. And uh, the dad um, quit his high paying job um, because he wanted to focus more on doing things with his other son, like Little League and that sort of thing. And then they ended up doing a fundraiser, a big fundraiser, when they raised a ton of money to build a, a bridge over that arroyo so that no other child would walk, would walk across those pebbles and slip and fall. So something beautiful did come out of that. And as we were sitting on that child's bed in, in, in his bedroom, a hummingbird came to the window. And the mom said, "That's Joel. He yes. visits me every day." Oh,
1: um, um, <sighs> it's a beautiful story, Alicia. God Thank you is, so.
2: Yeah. The, well, and I appreciate again for giving me a safe space to to say these things because I, God summons us, you know. He shows us all the time the love He has for us. He, God yeah. is constantly showing me the love He has for me. I don't. I don't always accept it. And that's not God's fault. That's mine. Why don't I feel accepting or deserving of love? And that's what I have to look at. And I still um, contemplate that. I'm only laughing
1: because it's like looking in a mirror, you know. <laughs> the, the, uh, why, yeah, the why yeah. Why
2: why do we why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we beat ourselves up? And and I did come to that point where, you know, when I retired from boxing, it, it became very clear to me that I was signing up for this pain. I was the one stepping into that world of hurt. Mm-hmm. And I realized that all the pain and, the, and all the, the pain, like that was long over. My childhood was over. I was an adult woman and I had to ask myself, why am I continuing to hurt myself? It wasn't those girls who were hurting me. I was hurting myself by stepping in there.
0: Yeah, and I finally yeah.
2: decided that I didn't want to hurt anymore. I didn't want to yeah. get beat up anymore. And I sure as heck didn't want to beat anybody else up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a different kind of pain, isn't it? It's like the, the pain that you inflict upon yourself that's that's sort of purposeless. But then I mean it, it isn't it isn't because the, that pain led you to something beautiful. And then I'm, you know, I'm thinking also of the pain of Joel's loss and how we both teared up a little bit and how how close love and loss are, you know, and and how it's so I I just feeling like it's just a flower opening. It's all like a lotus blossom with the mud, you know, you got the mud too, all opening up into something greater. Mm-hmm. The other thing too, yeah. we have 10 more minutes. Um and I'm I'm not, I'm not sure where to go, but okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this because we're talking about children. So I find it so yeah. interesting that you were called to um to serve basically at this kid gloves gym where you not only healed yourself, but it, I'm, I think you're being modest. I think you did, a, you've done a lot of great work in terms of bringing forth the best in many, many children. And a great epiphany came to you in the story with Joel, where the little brother wanted to show you, show you his picture, and you decided that that wasn't going to be you anymore. It's a beautiful epiphany and, and the respect and the integrity and the honor that you showed in that changed the course of your life in amazing ways, I'm sure, and um, when we spoke the other day in our pre-interview, you mentioned that you're, that you're getting engaged in the world of children again, and I wonder if
2: you might tell us a little bit about that. Yes, Oh, that makes me so happy. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, my, my first book is beautiful, and I'm very, very lucky, and um, it's won three literary awards, which I couldn't have asked for more, and it's touching people's lives, which is exactly what I wanted it to do. Um, but it was it was hard to write. And um, so my next endeavor, and I'm super excited about this, are children's books, which I'm doing with my best friend Cheryl Smith, who is a genius at writing rhymes and limericks. And um, they're cute. Three, the first three are already written and they're based on food. And so the characters are food. So the first book is called Paquito the Taquito. So the character is the taquito. And every book is based on very deep themes. So these are children's books that all grown-ups will love. Um, the, Keto, the Taquito is about the cycle of life and that when we die, we go on and on and on. Um, we have another one, The Grape Escape, which is about Garrett the Grape. And that's all about appearances and, and to embrace growing older because that's where the true beauty lies. And then we have aubergine, the eggplant, wait, 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 which is wait, about,
1: except, one, yeah. I'm going to stop you for one sec, because the grape's grandpa is what?
2: The grape's. The oh, grape, so the grape, is the, a, the grape escape, his grandfather is the wise one, like the oracle, like, you know, Jesus. Okay. But his great grandfather is the golden raisin. Yeah. So grapes turn into raisins. <laughs> so that's
1: a beautiful transformation because <laughs> I'm turning into a yeah, raisin so the, myself these days. <laughs> yeah, so.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the golden raisin is, is respected and loved by everybody in his community. And like, he's, he's the top dog, right? But the little raisins, you know, they're born and they're naive. They're dumb, you know, they got tight skin and they're really plump and they, they think they're all that. And they try to coerce garrett the Great to go on these stupid these adventures where they basically get themselves into trouble but he's wise because he's got a great grandfather who's the golden raisin and he all he wants is to be like the golden raisin that's all he wants so he goes through all these trials and tribulations he ends up coming back to his little community and has this discussion with the golden raisin and that book just uh it'll make you laugh it'll make you cry um my best friend cheryl just um who is very intuitive, um, a reiki master herself. So I would just give her a general idea and she would write it. And, and it, they're brilliant. I and mean, they're clicking into place so quickly. I know they were, we know they were meant to be, and we were absolutely supposed to do it because we were having so much fun. And the creative process is so beautiful. So right now we're just, um, we're looking for an illustrator. And uh, we're, they are, are going to be published this year. Oh, that's so wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> so in everything we <laughs> talked about today, we're,
1: we're, um, we're getting, we're getting down to the, to concluding our time together, but in everything that you've learned in your life, whether it's been through boxing or your childhood or your spiritual training or through writing children's books or writing your, your, uh, your book about boxing, what is, what's your greatest hope for the world?
2: I just, I want us all to love each other mm-hmm. and accept each other. And I want the world, I want every person to, to love themselves, to really love themselves and to understand how precious they are. Because every single person on this planet that's alive right now is absolutely precious. And they are absolutely meant to be here and they are here for a reason. And I know that because they're here. Because we are here, um, there, there's we are connected to each other. Everything we do matters, and to understand that we are collectively as one, we really are. And that probably sounds cliche, but it is true. We are all connected, and every single thing we do does matter. And there is a ripple effect to everything we do, whether it's quote good or bad. There is going to be a result from those choices, and I try to live my life being as kind as I can. You know, I, I'm not always, I'm only human, but I strive just to be um, the kindness that, you know, that Jesus exhibited, mm-hmm. this, this intense love that he exhibited that he never faltered away from. And I am a very fallible human. I'm not even close to this man, Jesus, that walked, who was a man who lived his life a certain way. And I, I do aspire to be like that. It's incredibly difficult, but um, every person here is special and every human is special. And um, I just hope that everything I do connects everybody in a positive way. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, it seems like that's part of your vision for the world and also the, the contribution that you that you are, are making is is connecting people in a positive way. And, and what a Mm, what a beautiful journey, you know. I mean, uh, even the parts where you allegedly <laughs> connected people in a way that you didn't, that, that in, in hindsight, you wish you, you maybe hadn't, like writing about the crime scenes and all of that stuff. That it just seems like it was just foot, footprints, foot, footsteps, stepping stones on that journey that brought you to this beautiful place where you are now, you know, and how what a great opportunity it is to love, to love that, you know, to love, love everything that everything belongs. You know, you mentioned um, you mentioned Jesus. I thought when I read about you that you that you were Buddhist. You, don't you you do Buddhist practice as well? Did I did I read that wrong? Yes,
2: yeah. yes, I am a Buddhist, and um, for the longest time, many years of my life, people were saying you're a Buddhist. You're really a Buddhist at heart. Um, and I thought, okay, yeah, yeah, and it makes sense to me. It's a beautiful philosophy, is what I love about Buddhism. Um, but of course, I believe in Jesus and God. Of course, I do, and I think a lot of people have a mix of a lot of beautiful things and religions and teachings. And, um, I like to take, you know, the beautiful pieces of all those teachings and incorporate them into my life, whatever works, you know, um, for anybody or myself, but uh, I just resonate to Buddhism because it's, it's, in my opinion, very honest. Um, the, one of the Buddhist teachings is that life is suffering and, um, and it doesn't. It, that doesn't mean anything dark or negative. It just means that's part of the beauty of being alive, of being human. As part of it is suffering, and suffering can be a beautiful thing if we can go ho- get on, get through to the other side, and, and, and look at it, you know, in a different way. Suffering, yeah. suffering is awesome if we can use it to help us grow or deepen us on some level. And then when we have that suffering and the experience of suffering we can help other people who are suffering because nobody's alone in their suffering. Right. But if we right. don't have it, how can we help others? So that's, that's a great thing about that is when you have experienced that and gone through the other side, you can help somebody else who's, who's going through something similar. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It seems that suffering builds, um, compassion. And, um, one of, one of my spiritual teachers, uh, is Richard Rohr, who's a, um, Franciscan, a Franc- Franciscan mystic. And he talks about how, the ways, the most powerful ways that we transform are through great love and great suffering. And in in my lifetime, mm. I feel like they're the same thing at this point because you don't suffer unless you love. And if you if you love, you're you know because life is impermanence. Another Buddhist teaching, you're gonna you're gonna lose what you love and you're gonna suffer. So it's just it's such an intertwining, such a you know to draw from another tradition, such a yin yang symbol, you know that that just. We're just immersed in it. It's so just so beautiful and so wonderful. Yeah,
2: yeah really I I've, I found that my life goes easier when um, I don't um, when I don't damn the things that right. I view as painful. When I yeah. when I embrace it and love it. Now when I'm going through it, it's some it's very challenging. But when yeah, I get to on the other side, I'm 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 grateful because it's like okay, I can use this now. Yeah. I can use it to help others.
1: Yeah. How do you see it? Like when you, when you're going through something, I, I found that sometimes when I'm in the middle of something, I don't, I don't see, I don't see it as something manageable. I just, it, it, I don't see mm. clearly, you know, I don't back up and step back and, and move into the place of the observer and say, ah, this is, do you have, do you have tools for doing that? For, for being able to see yeah, when you're in the midst um... of something?
2: Yeah. And my tools are pretty hardcore. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it unless you feel <laughs> you're strong enough to do it. But, but yeah, when I, when I go through those places, you know, those cycle of neg- the cycles of negativity, those depression spells, you know, I, I haven't, you know, they still come and go. Um, my method is to sit with it Yeah, sit with it. And I, I feel it. I do not check out because it would be, yeah, I could check out, hey, I've done that method, I've checked out, but you know what? Two hours later, it's back. It, it comes back. So I say okay, that's not going to work. i got to sit with this. The only way out is through. So sometimes um, I will be sitting there and my TV will be on and I'll be looking at it, but I'm not watching it. And I'll, two or three hours will have passed. I'll sit there, I might be crying for those, that entire three hours. But I also know that the, the depression, those dark times, they, they always are only temporary. I know yeah. that. So I will yeah. tell myself this is only temporary. And sometimes I'm bawling when I say it, but I'll be like, this is only temporary. It's only temporary. This is going to pass. This too will pass. This too will pass. And it will. And it does. It always does. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes it passes in three days. Sometimes it takes three weeks. But I know that what I'm going through is valuable, but it's excruciating. I, but yes. I also know that I'm, I'm able to endure it because that thing uh, that god will never give you more than you can handle that's a cliche but i believe that to be true yeah because god yeah. is with me in those moments he's there he's suffering with me he's uh-huh. left he's right there so yeah that's yeah. how i get through it as i just i stay with it however long it lasts yeah. and i and yeah. i embrace it and i and i try my best to love it
1: yeah yeah it's that that's it is. That doesn't sound unreasonable to me. That's what I do, but I don't always want to do it. <laughs> like most people probably.
2: It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's hard when it's ourselves, but like you would treat like a child. How would you treat a child that was crying or hurting? You would break right. that child. You tell them he was special. You'd them you would tell me you love him. So in those moments, it's like God saying those things to me. Yes,
1: absolutely. So um, I see Kristen is back and we're going to move to the next phase. So Alicia, just one closing statement. What's the most important thing for us to know?
2: That you are here for a reason mm. and to keep going. This is a very important time, a very critical time in our world's history. It's an incredibly amazing time to be alive and everything we're witnessing with this, with this pandemic and all these changes. We were chosen to be here right now. So we got to all embrace that and take ownership of it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you so much
1: for speaking with me. And I'm going to turn you back over to, to Kristen.
0: Wow. <laughs> This has been such a powerful call to witness, and I just want to give gratitude to you, Alicia and Bonnie, for holding the space and all that's been shared. Um, I want to remind our listeners that they can submit a question or a comment anytime on our live stream or send us an email. Uh, there are f- a few that have come in, and this one that just came in seems really rich. There's someone that can really relate to what you're um uh, your journey and um, I haven't read all of it but um, this is from Mark thank you for your time after giving my life to Christ in 2018 I found myself going through a difficult spiritual battle and also discovered boxing around the same time which I've been doing on and off since with boxing I find it to be very therapeutic at times but mostly just because after getting in the ring and facing the fears of fighting someone just feel a tremendous sense of peace and calm after emerging from the ring, still alive and not severely injured. But I also have some of the same struggles you are discussing here, not wanting to beat up others. As I often feel guilty, allowing my anger to arise and violently punching someone else in the face. My question is in two parts. Do you believe it was necessary for you to go through that season of boxing in order to face fears and traumas that you had? and surmount them and step into the next stage of your self-awareness and spiritual life. I'll save the next question for after, because I, I think that there's a lot just in that first question, but I think it's beautiful how there's some, this person relates so much to what you've gone through.
2: Oh uh, yeah. I'm fascinated by that. Um, that's amazing. For me and my journey, absolutely. Boxing was what I needed and God knew that. I needed something very intense and very hardcore and very all consuming to, to get me to that place of strength. That's what I needed. So for me, it was the sport of boxing. It was the one thing that, um, he ca- that I would stay focused on. I believe God knew that God knew that I would, I would, I would meet it. That I would complete it. I would complete the journey. Um, I also believe that God wanted me to write about it. Um, because um, it, it never went away. I, it only took me 20 years to write my book, Fighting Chance. And the reason why was because I was afraid to be so vulnerable. I was afraid of being judged. But then I realized I had to be vulnerable because it was the only thing that would connect us. Vulnerability and sharing our vulnerabilities is the only thing that we all share together. So yes, for me, boxing was necessary. I needed something that intense to get me to the other side.
0: Mm. Thank you. The second qu- part of the question from Mark is, do you believe that the sport and inherent violence of boxing can be reconciled with self-love and the religious and spiritual values of Jesus that you discuss? The sport
2: of boxing itself.
0: So how, how do you put together the violence of boxing with the self-love mm. and the spiritual teachings? How do, how do those fit together for you? is what I believe. For me,
2: question. it was, that's a great question. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, that's, um, for me, it was, um, I. the sport showed me that the, the world of pain that I was in, that at that point, I was the one stepping into that world of pain. Nobody was doing it to me. Nobody was victim, you know, I wasn't a victim. I was stepping in and I had to develop enough self-love so that I wouldn't get beat up anymore i realized i had to love myself so much that it was like okay you know what i love myself i'm not going to get into that war anymore i'm not going to get in that battle i care about myself i actually care about myself and maybe part of that too was my pro fight was very hard my pro fight was was a war um it was named the california female fight of the year my opponent was amazing but I was hurt in that fight. I got hurt bad in that fight, and I probably should have gone to the hospital, but I didn't. And as a result, I have an inner ear injury on my right hand side. It doesn't hurt, but it's been compromised. And after I was beaten in that fight, you know, I realized, you know, I still wanted, I still had a, my whole life to live. I need my ears. I need my brain. I definitely need my hands. And that was another part of it. Was I? I didn't want to get permanently injured and destroy the next half of my life. But I, that came from me loving myself enough to say no more. I'm not stepping into that that war zone anymore. Yeah, I hope I, that answers the question. Yeah,
0: and I think that you found a way to be within the world of boxing through your volunteering with children and coaching them and find in going the path of the non-contact boxing. Um, and I, yeah I think it's a real it's a complicated issue. Um, there's another question that came in from Scott. He, um, he says, beautiful call. Thank you. Moving, touching. I'm 62 and have recently got back into boxing. Com- competing scares and attracts me in equal measure. What advice do you have to give me to carry on? Well,
2: one thing I love about boxing is there is no age discrimination.
0: None.
2: I'm sure you see guys that are in their 50s getting in there with guys that are in their 20s. I mean, when I was almost 30, I was fighting teenagers. It's a matter of your athletic skill. And if you feel strong enough to get in there and compete, then, then by all means, do it. Um, you know, just uh, for me, I always knew, like, okay, I knew I was getting into the ring with girls that were a decade younger than me. And I knew that they had um, endurance, but so did I, but I had stamina. I could always outlast them. So part of it for me was strategy. I lost the first round of every fight I had, and I knew I would because it also took me time to warm up. Um, because these girls would come in there and they would literally blow their wad in round one. They would give it everything they got. I would take it. I'd lose round one, but then by round two they'd be wiped out. So I usually would get you know take them out in round two or three. So there was some strategy there. But um, you know I I understood that I was older and I accepted that, and I also took the steps I needed to. Um, to count, you know, to take, take ownership of what I could bring to the ring as an older fighter. And a lot of that was ring maturity. I had ring maturity over all these girls and that I put, pl- I put into my strategy.
0: Awesome. Wonderful. Um, I hope Scott continues and we'll see if he gets in the, in the ring again. Um, uh, one of the things, this is a question of my own that I was one- thinking about before this call. Um, one of the things that was moving, f- so moving to me in your memoir was the description of what it was like directly after so many of the, these boxing matches, particularly between you and your opponent. You talked about this a little bit, yeah. um, on this call about what it was like after that tournament and being embraced mm-hmm. how you, you felt that those girls that you fought were, or kind of your cushion and your pillow through that um, after that last loss. Um, and I, I just found it so beautiful how you and your opponent displayed so much mutual respect and sportsmanship, and it felt to me more beyond a formality. Um, and I was particularly interested in the camaraderie with the woman you fought in your first fight, and then again, Layla. Um, and I saw, I noticed on the back how actually she... Um, she had a blurb in your back of the book so I, I I sense that maybe there's an ongoing friendship um and I was wondering if you could two things like talk a little bit about the dynamics between women boxers did you feel like that camaraderie that you have was that unique to you or do you see that existing in the sport moving forward and then um and then maybe a little bit about Layla um if the yeah <laughs> yeah
2: oh Layla McCarter um I love I love her. She's an amazing human being. Um, her level of sportsmanship is is over the top, and she's the one that actually taught me that sportman. So she was a kid when I fought her. My first my first fight was an exhibition, which means um it's not an official fight. It doesn't go on the books, but yeah, you know, okay. This was a real fight. This was a war. So um, I stepped into the ring with Layla McCarter, who you know, was a former kickboxing champ. I want to say she was 16 or 17 years old. And um, she wiped the mat with me. I mean, that was, you know, I had two standing eights. And this is all in the book. I almost got knocked out twice by her. And, um, but I survived. But I obviously lost if it was on the books. And then, and then I ended up training. And then fast forward, I ended up fighting her again. And I remember being terrified when I saw the matchups, I was matched up with Layla again. And I fought her again because back then there were so few women in America competing that it was normal for girls to be matched up more than once. There were not, there weren't that many of us. So um, with that fight, I survived. I didn't get knocked, almost get knocked out. Um, I lost by a few points, but I was still devastated because I lost, I really wanted to win. But that was when um, Layla came up to me afterwards and embraced me and she's and I was, of course I was crying because I lost. <laughs> And she's like, why? Why are you crying? She said, you did so. She's like, I was scared. She said, when you hit me with that first punch, I was scared. She said, you, you're so much better than you were, you know, many weeks ago. And so her, she was so amazing that I thought, I want to be like that. I'm gonna be just like that. So with every opponent after that, I was exactly the same. And um, there was one opponent in particular, uh, Lisa Valencia, who is still in my life too. She started her own box uh, boxing gear line. But um, that was um, that was a gnarly fight, and afterwards we embraced each other. Um, there was one fight where I fought a girl in her hometown, and um, I had nobody in my corner but you know my coach and somebody an assistant, and she had the whole like town in her corner, and they wanted her to win. I believe they let the fight go on longer than it should have because she was bleeding pretty bad. Um, but she lost, and I won that fight. I earned that fight. It was a battle. It was a war. I don't know what she was expecting afterwards because she was surrounded by a whole crowd of people after the fight, and I had to make my way through the crowd because I wanted to embrace her, and I wanted to thank her for, for stepping in the ring with me. And I think that they, and this is all in the book, I, I don't. I think that they might have thought I was going to go up and talk smack to her, like sometimes you see. And I, I didn't do that at all. Um, I, I just said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I broke your nose. Are you Okay. And then, and then I told her how remarkable she was. I said, you know, what you did is remarkable. You know that many people on the whole entire planet haven't done what you've done, you know, and just be able to talk to them and, you know, lift them up because that's important as women and just as people. I think it's important for us to just be kind to one another you know, talking smack, like what, what good is that going to do? Well, you know, that would make me look bad. It would make women in the sport look bad. It was very important for me as a female in the sport to be of utmost integrity because I knew the world was watching. I knew that world of boxing was watching. And just as an athlete, sportsmanship is really important because people are watching. We got to be good to each other and kind to each other. And especially when we win and we beat somebody up. we Thank you for stepping in the ring with me. It was an honor. To, to to compete
0: against you. That's 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 a beautiful um illustration of the ripples of starting with Layla, then to yep. you, her modeling it mm-hmm. for you, and then and how many more, especially that it it's it feels like you were at the right the beginning of this emerging sport for women in um and just imagining the ripples outward. Um there's a comment, uh, from Mish and, uh, the, this person mentions KindSpring, which is a, um, one of the initiatives of service space that it's basically this portal for, um, people to share their acts of kindness. And, um, Mish writes, KindSpring transforms people. Spending time on the feed had a direct impact on my life. Um lit up the kindness center of my mind life was never the same grateful and I just I see the connection between um between KindSpring and the work that you did making that decision to to change your freelance reporting career from the doom and gloom stories to focusing on the on the good news, and I know you talked about Joel um, and uh, reporting on his story and his family. But I was wondering if, if you, if there's another favorite good news story that you felt inclined to share with us? Yes,
2: <laughs> and there's so, there's thousands, thousands. Um, you know, I, when when I went freelance and decided to focus solely on good news, I also knew that I would do well at it because there's more good news out there than bad. I knew that for a fact. Um, so that said, uh, oh, this. So it's a gentleman named Ishmael Tesperati. I met him and his wife in Simi Valley. And when Ishmael was younger, he was this big, hotshot producer director. Um, and him and his wife, these amazing lives. And then when he was in his 50s, he came down with Lou, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And for people who don't know what that is, basically it robs you of of every motor function in your body, but your brain is perfectly fine. But you can't move. There's so in Ishmael's case, the only thing that he could move on his body was the blink of one eye. He could blink with one eye. So his wife figured out how to create a way for Ishmael to communicate by blinking with one eye. Now, keep in mind, this guy's brain is still brilliant, but he can't move. And um, so she created this alphabet chart and basically blink at a time, one blink at a time, one letter, one word, one sentence, one paragraph at a time. This guy wrote a book. With the help of his wife and the book is called one blink at a time so i got the i had the, the honor of meeting these people and being fascinated and what really touched my heart well besides from the fact that this guy's remarkable and wrote a book by blinking one eye was their love for each other that's what really hit my heart was they, these people had it all they had you know they had they were wonderful people they had money they you know he was a director and then all of a sudden his life changed. And this th- walking away was not never something this woman considered his wife, Cheryl, never walked away. She stayed by his side. She loved him. And I, in, in those moments, when I'm sitting there watching this and the, the amount of care that's required for this man, I had, I, I asked myself silently, would I be able to do this? If I had a husband and this happened to my husband, would I stay? And I mean, I really thought about that. And this woman, you know, and I, of course I had to ask the question, you know a lot of not many some people might not stay why did you stay and she said it, to her it was like a ridiculous question she said because i love him so you know they gave him not a very you know doctors are like telling him he wasn't going to live for past this age whatever he's still alive well, he died this past year, so his spirit is enormous here. But this was just recent that he passed away. Um, but his wisdom and his love and his gift to the world lives on in that book that he wrote. And his wife is, is amazing. Um, but yeah, Cheryl and Ismail Tesparati are the two people that really touched my heart. And I ended up writing numerous stories about them. I mean, I wrote; a, they were included in a, in a Valentine story I wrote about what you know, true love, what real love is. Um, I did a story about them, what it's like for people to be, be in a relationship with somebody with a, a severe disability. Um, so yeah, they were two of my favorite people and I had the pleasure to see Cheryl at one of my recent book signings. Um, but yeah, Ishmael passed away. Um, not that many months ago.
0: Hmm. Thank you for sharing about them. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I wanted to follow up um, one of the beauties of having this be live um, is that there's actually a follow-up comment from Scott, the 62-year-old boxer. He said, thank you, Alicia, for your answer. I agree with you that we are all connected, and the best way out is always through. I shall buy your book. Thank you again. You are a beautiful school. soul. Thank you. Oh,
2: that's that's awfully nice. That's mm-hmm. awfully nice, Scott. Yeah, and it's got, if you don't want to like compete, compete, you can always spar. Like, <laughs> and you'll be protected. You'll be wearing protective <laughs> headgear. You know, it's not as dangerous. And you might be able to get the same kind of Russian effect that you'd like just mm-hmm. through sparring. You don't have to step into the, the incredible danger of fighting, you know, professionally, <laughs> because it's very dangerous, as you know.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask you about. Um like you you say that you know boxing called you and um yeah. and then and then there was a time where that call was no lo- you you weren't called although you kind of were you were kind of wanting to go back to boxing but you knew that it wasn't the right thing and then you um in yeah. your book i think you mentioned that you were really drawn to the long hikes and i wanted to ask what is yeah. calling you right now do you still feel um the call of nature to do these long hikes or tell us uh, tell us about What's calling you right now?
2: Oh, yeah, well, um, I still, of course, kid gloves. I, I'm still addicted to coaching and addicted to being with those children. They call me all the time. Um, I love them and I know, um, you know, they do a lot for me and I do a lot for them. So that calls me. Yes, um, the hikes were really great because I would always hike alone and these hikes would take hours on end. And it was just a really good time for me to just think and think and contemplate, um, you know, I still go on long walks. I live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world, the city of Ventura, where um, everything around is so beautiful. Um, but what's calling me now is, is love and peace. And for the, you know, I'm 51 years old now. So for the next half of my life, I want my life to be as drama free as possible. I want it to be filled with love and joy. And I want to give, give the gift of love and joy to the world through my children's books and and uh, the last half of my life, I, I'm never going to stop writing. I'm going to write until the moment I take my last breath because I believe that's why I'm here. And um, these children's books, you could see, they get me so excited, and I know they're going to do well, and they're going to make people laugh and cry like we do when we write them and put them together. So, what's calling me is just to continue to follow God's word and listen to Him, and and try to be the best human I can be and to not hurt anyone. I'm going to try real hard to not hurt anyone and, um, continue to do God's work. However, he calls me to do it.
0: It can, you can see just hearing you talk about it, um, uh, about the children's book and your spiritual path, how, how alive and connected you are with that. And it's, um, thank you. I'm going to, there's one more comment before I ask my last question. Um, and this is a reflection from David. And I think that, uh, he, he starts out with, I do see boxing to be a violent sport, be it male or female. I think boxing as well as most activity can be a tool of transformation. Congratulations that boxing was that for you and you let it be. Sometimes the way out is in that's exactly, that's, it feels like the theme for today. Many years ago, I spent three <laughs> years in a seminary wanting to become a Catholic priest. It was a space in which I started my transformation from trying to fit in a program that was outside of me to allowing myself to look inside and become what I am. It was a transformation for me from image to real, which many years still goes on. And I think that uh, this comment says so much about... Like it doesn't have to be boxing. It doesn't have to be, I mean, th- I think there's so many ways to transform and have that journey. Um, that there uh so many of our listeners are relating to what you've shared, um, even if they've never really thought about boxing itself. Um the the final question that we have for all guests on a weekend call is um how can we in the wake and calls community and the broader service space ecosystem support your vision and work in the world? Oh. So how can how can we support you?
2: Oh, that's so so kind. Well, I would love for people to read Fighting Chance because I believe the, the lessons and the message and the themes are universal. In fighting chance. Yes, it's about boxing, but at the same time, it's not about boxing at all. It's not. It's about looking deep within ourselves and digging deep, deep and, and finding out the love, the deep love, innate love that we were all born with that we can give ourselves into the world. Um, I the more people that read in Fighting Chance, the, the happier it makes me. And the best part is when complete strangers email me after reading my book about their their journey or our our our, our the, the similarities that we had in our journeys. Um, you know, I I cry over these emails. Um, these are strangers, but at the same time, they're not. You know, we are all connected. Um, it's important for me to get the message out there, just because. I believe there's beautiful nuggets of wisdom in my book, and, I'm, and they're not me per se. These are, these are pieces of wisdom given to me. Um, the reason why Fighting Chance is so amazing is because I journaled the whole time I boxed. For the entire two years, I was journaling and writing down these incredibly spiritual, deep things that my coaches would say. Because it used to shock me that these guys would say these things, so I'd write it down immediately. These were deeply spiritual men. So that's another reason why fighting chance is so great is I got to convey these messages that these masters gave to me. And that's another reason why I was meant to write that book and why boxing why it came into my life. God nudged me into the sport by throwing the children in there. I think God knew she's not going to resonate to boxing if it's just boxing. But we know God's like, I know Alicia likes kids. That'll get her in there. And it worked because if I, if it wasn't for those children, I never would have never would have moved on with that story. I would have written one and, and just walked away. I read, ended up writing numerous stories about that gym. He ended up reopening on another side of town. I, I covered the opening of the new location. So um, it had been calling me for a long time and it's never stopped. It's never stopped to this day. I'm just as passionate about those kids as I ever was. Um, and I do not miss fighting at all. <laughs> I do not miss competing at all. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, um, I have your book right here and I, I was really blown away. You start each chapter with a quote from I think they're all famous boxers or at least coaches and their words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. I was really it's yeah. like I, I, I it needed a moment before going into your writing um, to like sit with what they said. Um, so I just wanted to echo the what you said about the wisdom from others coming into this book. Um, I am yeah. going to pass it over to Bonnie for her to have um, some final words or reflections.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Those were beautiful uh, questions from, from you and from everybody else who was present on the call. I so appreciated hearing all of that and, and learning from, from you, Alicia, and learning from the questions and learning from you too, Kristen. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> I just jotted down, this is based on some of the questions that I heard, just thoughts that popped into my head and I put them in an order and hopefully it will make sense. <laughs> so um, one thing I heard was that we are called to stay awake to the signs of transformation, mm-hmm. that deep is calling to deep all the time and we are called to stay awake to that and to listen to it. Um, the thing that scares us may be exactly what you need.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I believe it was, was it, um, who was it? Scott, Steve, somebody asked about uh, Jesus and, and the how reconciling Jesus with with boxing. To me, what Alicia was saying about stepping into the ring felt very much like a death and resurrection story, like a, a microcosm of a death and resurrection story that your fears have to die to step into the ring. And when you come out, you're something different. There's so there's that. Wow. <laughs> we're all we're all going through many, many death and resurrections all of the time. Um, and then let's see. Um, uh, Alicia was talking about to Scott. It was about um, being in the ring um, and her maturity as a boxer, and um, it felt like a calling for me, for all of us, to actually tap into maturity and, and wisdom from many years lived, and to to know to know the self, and to also hold back as needed. Because I also loved the follow up question from Scott, where Alicia said, "You know, you don't always have to fight. Sometimes you can spar." <laughs>
2: Oh, that might be great,
1: true, gosh. you know, in relationships or <laughs> whatever, does. you know, we have to fight sure. and spar sometimes, you know, <laughs> and then of course the theme through this whole call has been that the way out is through, the way out is through, and that's such a great metaphor for all of us to actually be with, to be with what is, and to honor what is, and then make a choice about be with it, whether it's fighting or sparring, whether it's using our maturity or just saying, no, I'm going to be like a spoiled little kid, or maybe just being with it and learning and, and digging in some something so that we can become like those children in kid gloves that do something really hard and feel so live and awakened by actually having done the work. So that's all I got other than just big gratitude for, for everybody on this call and most especially for our beautiful guest, Alicia. And uh, I'm going to turn it back thank over to you, Chris
0: Bonnie. Sure. Thank you. Yes. So much gratitude to you, Bonnie and Alicia, for all that you've shared. And we're so grateful to everyone who's tuned in today, uh, whether you're here with us now or listening later. Um, so we'll close out our call in the same way we opened it, with a moment of collective silence, this time in attunement and gratitude to honor all that was offered today, as well as the invisible causes and conditions that brought us together and the volunteers who made these calls possible. Thank you, Alicia.
2: Thank you for listening
1: to
0: a recording of Awaken Calls. To access archives, visit us at www.awaken.org. And to get more involved, volunteer at
1: www.servicespace.org.